Denver's legendary champions, next generation stars, and tireless ambassadors of the game, sharing their wisdom and guiding your journey to high achievement on the green felt. This is Chasing Poker Greatness with your host, Brad Wilson. What is happening, my friend, and welcome to the Chasing Poker Greatness podcast. As always, this is your host, the founder of ChasingPokerGreatness.com, Brad Wilson. And today's guest on the show is the winner of the 2004 WSOP main event and author of Winning Tournament Strategies, Greg Fossilman Raymer. Before I dive too deep into this intro, I want to give a big thanks to DNB Poker Publishing for putting this conversation together as well as the current and future CPG episodes with Amanda Botfeld, Ashley Adams, and Trisha Cardner. Now, in the world of poker, Fossil Man is a living legend. I remember the exact moment in time I was watching the 2004 WSOP main event with my old roommates. The moneymaker boom had just begun, and the WSOP was primetime, must-see TV on ESPN. That was the year David Williams burst onto the scene, Josh Arier became a household name if your household loves poker, and action Dan Harrington went back-to-back main event final tables. It was a great year for poker. Something that may be a little underappreciated today is Greg's 2005 main event run one year later, where he nearly defended his crown but ultimately finished in 25th place. I hope you're ready and chomping at the bit to take a trip back to the golden age of poker. In today's episode, you'll learn why Greg thinks limit poker is underappreciated and wishes more limit games were spread, Greg's hilarious poker origin story after first learning how to count cards playing blackjack, why Greg believes theory ought to be learned before tactics, and much, much more. Before you dive into Greg and I's conversation, just want to let you know that today's interview is brought to you by Poker with Presence. If you want to get in the zone and play your best when you need it the most, visit PokerWithPresence.com. And now, without any further ado, I bring to you the patent attorney turned poker legend, Greg Fossilman Raymer. Greg. Good afternoon, my friend. How are you doing? Great, Brad. Hope you're doing well. I see you're on a lovely beach. So uh... yeah, I'm working on my tan. I've heard that you know tan is good for energy levels and happiness. So I just spend my time interviewing folks sitting at the beach. Well, do me a favor. If you're one of those people who believe in the like sun exposure on the perineum, can you do that after we're done and not on this Zoom call? What, what does that I mean? Would, I... Sun exposure on the perineum. That's that area down like between your genitals and your butthole. And there's the people who think that you should expose that area to the sun for health. If you're one of those people, let's wait until the show's over and I'm not watching you on Zoom, please. Yeah, yeah. I'll I'll, I'll (laughs) wait till I just hit the record button and then it's butt butt up into the air. Um, If I I can't see it, I don't care. (laughs) Greg, it's great having you uh, (laughs) on the podcast. I've been a fan for a long time. Uh, Obviously, obviously you kind of did a thing in the poker boom that was a pretty big deal. It was the year directly after Moneymaker, right? Yes, it was. Chris was 03. I was in 04. 
and uh, and Joe Hashim 05 and so on. Yep. And um, I remember watching the WSOP back when I watched the WSOP religiously on ESPN and watching your run to the final table and then taking it down. I want to start before there, though, in our conversation. Okay. Let's start. Let's start. I want to know the story of how you got involved with playing cards in the first place. Sure. Well, you know, I learned the rules of poker somewhere as a kid. I mean, I mean, like, you know, under age, eight, under 18 years old, but I don't have any actual recollection of it. So I don't know at what point in my life I learned that a flush beats a straight and that poker cards, poker hands are five cards, you know, and, and so on, all those little details that we take for granted at this point in our poker life. Um, but I do remember, like, at my fraternity, we would have a poker game once or twice a year. A handful of us would get together and we would literally use coins. We, you know, we didn't have poker chips. Um, I uh, went to college from like 82 to 85. And I was at the University of Missouri at Rolla, which they now have renamed the Missouri uh, University of Science and Technology. And it's an engineering school primarily. And Rolla is a small town in the middle of the state. And so there were no girls, unfortunately. <laughs> I mean, yeah. you got 7,000 students and less than 1,000 of them are female. Um, and then the local city is the biggest city around and it's got 15,000 locals. So, uh, you know, lots of people getting drunk every weekend, all weekend long and stuff like that. Um, which I would have been doing too, except I'm allergic to alcohol. So I never have been drunk or even buzzed. No, I don't have any moral problem with it. I just makes me sick. So no. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we would do this only like a couple times a year, maybe. And, you know, we're doing all those silly games, past the trash and Anaconda and night baseball and silly things like that. And we're literally playing with coins, nickels, dimes, and quarters. And, I then went to University of Minnesota, where I got a master's degree in biochemistry, and then I went to law school at the University of Minnesota for three years after that. So we're talking until 92, I was in college, uh, one way, you know, working on one degree or the other. And the same thing there, I would get together with friends a couple times a year, we'd play poker, you know, everyone else but me would be drinking and, you know, ordering some pizza and play silly games, and none of us had any skill to speak of. We were all total fish. Um, of course, we didn't know that because, you know, when your whole pool is just a bunch of little fish, you all like, oh, I'm bigger, I'm bigger. And it's like, no, you're, we're all tiny little fish. We just don't know it. Yeah. And uh, at the same time, when I was in Minnesota, I got into card counting and I would go to the uh, travel casinos and count cards. And that was what I did to make like extra money. How did you so instead figure out, uh, how did you find out about card counting? I have no idea why she did, but an aunt of mine for Christmas gave me this book called The World's Greatest Blackjack Book, which I think is still out there in publication. You can still go buy a copy, and it is a good book. It it assumes nothing. So the first chapter or two is literally, these are the rules of blackjack. And then it teaches basic strategy, and then it teaches simple card counting, and then it adds in things like, oh, you're going to do an ace side count, and then towards the end of the book, it's talking about strategy adjustments based on the count. So, you know, yeah, your basic strategy when you have a 16 and the dealer showing a 10 is to hit. But if the count gets to plus six or higher, you're supposed to stand. 
Okay, because um, you have a higher so, probability of going broke at that point. Yeah, I mean, at that point, you're kind of screwed. Yeah, because you're, you, you're highly likely to lose no matter what you do. But apparently, as the count gets higher and higher, it reaches a point where you're slightly less likely to lose if you stand rather than hit. And And similarly for other decisions, you know, you're supposed to, you know, stand on a 12 versus a dealer three. But again, depending upon the account, you would hit instead. Um, so for all these decisions of hitting and standing and doubling down and so on, you can make adjustments based on the count. And that is the most complicated part of the whole method if you're going to go that far. That's because the edge, you have right? to You have to memorize all... Well, you get, can get an edge before that without doing this adjustment. Um, this just enhances your edge. But it also means you've got to memorize a whole bunch of these numbers that you know, all these basic strategy decisions. Now it's like, oh, but for this one, if the count gets to this or higher, I change. Or if it gets to this or lower, I change. Um, so that adds a, a lot more memorization and uh, and so on. But in any event, I read that book, you know, and since I like math and stuff, I thought that was pretty interesting. And so I learned some of it and went and tried it out and was able to make, like, I was only averaging like seven bucks an hour. But back then, that was like more than double minimum wage. So rather than a part-time job that I had to work on your schedule, you know, if you're my boss, now I can just go whenever I want, drive to the casino, play blackjack, count cards. So if I'm busy at the end of the semester and we got studying for tests and things, then don't go. And maybe early in the semester when I had more free time, could go more often. And... Then I finished school. I was a lawyer, uh, became a patent attorney. My first job was in Chicago. I checked out the riverboats, and the rules were not very amenable to card counting. They would shuffle very early. They had six-deck or eight-deck shoes, that, and they had the big shoes like that in Minnesota. But if you've got a six-deck shoe and they're going to deal out like five of the decks before they shuffle – there at the end, you could get some more extreme counts and have more opportunities where you were the big favorite. Um, the ones in Illinois and around Chicagoland were doing things like, you know, we've got an eight deck shoe and we were only going to deal like four of the decks and then shuffle. So it was less opportunity. You're going to make less money. And then I kind of accidentally found a poker game someone had sent me off to a play like, Oh, we got charitable gaming in Illinois. I've heard about this company. They do this all the time, several days a week and you can play blackjack. And my friend didn't know that there's a maximum bet of $10. <laughs> so I, I, I showed up and I was like, Oh, I can't make any money here at $10 max bet. Wait, wait, you and showed up to this charitable event to count cards and beat them out of money. Well, yeah. <laughs> but it's it's a, it's an odd scenario. I mean, the way it works, it doesn't. The charities are essentially going to get paid like five, six hundred bucks for sending a couple of volunteers to run the uh, cashier booth. Almost, I mean, the company running it is the one who actually makes the money. Okay. So if if I were to have a great night counting cards, I really would have been taking away from the charitable casino corporation that arranged it all, Which as opposed to much the more charity itself. Yeah, but. Anyway, I didn't know anything about it at the time. They just said, hey, we got these things, you know, and I went to check it out. But they had poker. And like, oh, I always had fun playing with my buddies in college. 
So since the blackjack game was a waste of time, I just went to play poker for fun. And yeah, I could look at those games now and say, oh my God, those people were really not very good at poker. But at the time, you know, they were talking like, ah, what are you doing? You didn't have pot odds for that, you know, to call me on the turn. And I'm like, what's pot odds? Like, never heard of that before. And so it got me interested. And I went to a used bookstore and they had three poker books. I bought them all. And one of them, fortunately for me, was The Theory of Poker by David Sklansky. And so that book is, even today, like when I teach my students and stuff, when I do my live seminars, when I do private lessons, I do not try to teach, like, here is a chart of, you know, hands you should play. I go in early position, you know, fold these and call those and raise with these. It's like, no, 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 here's, let's get into the concepts that drive your understanding of the game. And then with that great understanding, you will be able to determine in the moment what hands you should play and how you should play them. And then also factor in things like, well, it's not just that someone raised an early position and therefore you should fold all but these top couple of hands. It's like, well, who raised? What's their range? You know, do I play a lot more hands because it's Brad who raised? Or do I play even fewer hands because it's Brad who raised? So I would rather teach all these concepts and that way you can figure it out in the moment. And yeah, you'll have some basic strategy things of here's generally what I'm going to do in certain circumstances, but then you need that ability to consider all these factors so you can have the flexibility to make adjustments in the moment. And and that's especially true in things like tournament poker and stuff, because now the stack sizes are always in play. In cash games, stack size usually isn't that big of a deal. A lot of the decisions you make, the stack size isn't, you haven't gotten to the point where it matters how deep you are because so many people cash games tend not to be short stacked. Yeah. They're extremely deep and it's somewhat rare to get so deep in the decision tree that you're getting in like 400 big blinds in a given hand. And typically just the Mm -hmm. depth is around that for like the, the good pros are sitting, you know, 500 to a thousand big blinds deep at the cash games. Well, even if it's just, people with 100 or 200 blinds like a lot of one two no limit games around the country that might have a max buy-in of only 200 so you can only buy in for 100 blinds but even at 100 blinds you generally are not factoring in stack size and your at least your pre-flop decisions yeah by the time you get to the turn of the river the stack size might start to become a factor but in tournaments the stack sizes are a factor all the time and then you've got you know bubble situations icm considerations you know in a cash game if if you have you know you know even if you're short stacked relative to the players you have 100 big blinds you know and i have 300 you are not going to play tighter because i've raised you out of my 300 blind stack as opposed to someone else who raised with an 80 blind stack right you know you're just that's not really a factor in your thinking, but in tournaments, people will do that. They will just like, Ooh, I don't want to play against that person that has more chips than me because they can knock me out right now. Oh, and that guy, but if he raises, he has less than me. He can't knock me out. I'll be a lot looser for me personally. 
you know, if I had a hundred big blinds in a tournament, I'm really not playing differently because the person who raised has 80 big blinds or 120 big blinds compared to my hundred. I'm probably playing those the same. Now, if it starts to get to the point where there might be an all in in this hand, that might be a small factor if we're like on the bubble or close to it or something like that. But a lot of players in tournaments really do kind of take that stance of trying to avoid people with bigger stacks. Yeah. And it's, um, it, I, I love this, the, the idea of teaching theory before the tactical hand charts and stuff like that, because that's what, you know, if you're a crusher at say live cash games or live tournaments, because you have a great theoretical understanding of the game, it allows you to transition to different games and be somewhat competent without even having any experience playing them. If you just are thinking of poker and game theory at a very high level, like you can switch to PLO and like, yes, it's an incredibly different game. It's more equity driven than Hold'em, but fundamentally you can still see like, oh, these guys are making clear mistakes. Like (laughs) they're limping with hands under the gun that are just not hands you ought to be limping with. And they're like flatting three bets cold with like hands that they should not be flatting three bets cold with. And you have an idea that like you have an edge, even in a game that you have no experience in when you have a strong fundamental theory background. Funny when you describe it and use those words, like uh, you see something, you're like, that just has to be wrong. Yeah. It reminds me of when I first learned the draw games because before I won the main event, you know, I played tournaments a lot, but I've played a lot of cash games. And, you know, we're talking back then and, you know, 03 and, and so on. And there weren't really no limit cash games. Most of the games were limit. And my main game, um, I used to live in Connecticut. Uh, not that far from Foxwoods. And my main game was a mixed game. We used to have like a 75-150 mixed game that would go three, four, five days a week. And Foxwoods could only deal legally the five different games that you would find in horse. Yep. And this mix pretty much always had the O and the E, the two high-low split games. It almost never had the R, the Raz. And then it usually had one or both of the Hold'em and Stud High. So three or four of the five games was a typical mix. And then after I won the main event, I still preferred these mixed games. But I knew like, no, now that I'm traveling and I'm out west a lot, I'm going to Vegas and L.A. for tournaments and things like that. It's like, well, these mixed games at that, you know, this was before Badusi and Badesi and that kind of stuff existed. But they did have Badoogie and Triple Draw. And the mixed games almost always included those. And I'm like, well, I've never had the chance to play them. And there are no books. It's not like I can't go to the bookstore and find a book on how to play Badoogie. And so basically I just, you know, sat at home for a few days and, you know, did some number crunching and simulations and stuff and kind of tried to deduce what I thought was good strategy. And so no experience, but still just trying to figure some things out. And then the first time I sat down, it was like I was in L.A. And it's like, oh, here's a 100-200 mix game that included those. And the starting from that very first hand, I was just like, okay, I know I don't know this game, but I'm pretty sure that has to be a big mistake. 
like there's been a raise and now you know under the gun raise and the next guy calls and he's drawing three cards and triple draw and i'm like that has to be wrong doesn't it like i mean i'm trying to think like can you know something about this guy that makes that correct when you still have everyone else behind you who might you know call or three bet and no man greg we got a pair or actually a triple draw you're it's a it's low ball so it's a low game so you got like two two to the two to the wheel or whatever i mean it it may not be horrible if your starting hand was something like deuces full of sevens and so you're going to just keep a deuce and, and you know that like there's only one deuce left for anyone else there's only two sevens you know in other words it's really hard for anyone else to make much of a hand and with three draws i can make something i may or may not make this seven low but it's just really hard for anyone else to ever make much right um, so it might be correct a wheel is not spot. a good hand in deuce of seven by the way i realized that after i said it a wheel well, is it, it is but when we use the word wheel in that game we mean two three four five seven yeah that's the that's that's the nuts so if someone says i have a wheel unless they're lying or have misread their cards that's what they're telling you in deuce whereas ace to five low ball type games they mean the ace two three four five and yeah but yeah yeah, i mean it's hard to come up with a scenario where like keeping two with the action still open or and drawing three um versus a tight range is going to be a positive play well and, and you know I, it's funny because I've had debates with some players who are actually really good players, you know, talking about like essentially like I'm basically never calling a raise to draw three or more. Yeah. Certainly never four. And I've had some like, no, 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 there are times you should. And I'm like, I'd love to see some evidence besides just an opinion. Cause I just don't see how it could be. And, and unless you're telling, and I said, I said, let's change it a little bit. Like now what if the person who raised is a, reasonably solid player in other words they're not raising with three card draws you know you don't if if they do have a three card draw it's because they were raising with something like deuces full and then they're like yeah even then i'm like i don't know almost i'm gonna have to see some evidence here not just an opinion because i don't think so well with all of my worldly knowledge of nothing it feels like a hand like deuce deuce seven 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 or deuce 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 seven seven even plays better as a three bet if you're going to be under utg plus one facing a raise like you have great blockers it feels like it's easier to play as a three bet you you would probably have to turn it into a snow yeah if you're going to three bet it you you would maybe draw one just because that looks stronger in that game Right, because if you if you raise and stand pat from the get go, people assume that your range includes rough eights and possibly nines, and therefore they will not fold if they make such a hand that beats those. So when yeah. they make a you know like a, a smooth eight seven or better, even just a bad eight, they'll like, well, I hope he had a nine. You know, maybe you had like two, three, four, eight, nine. Yeah, it's not a, not a good look three betting with your blockers and then drawing three. I don't think that's uh, <laughs> that would certainly get some eyebrows raised. Well, that's like playing online when that game was first added. I remember a spot where this guy check raised me, you know, after the first and second draws where it's like, okay, I've raised. He's defended his blind and he's like, he's drawing three and I'm drawing two. And now he check raises. And then he's like drawing two it's like your first act dude like 
Like, I improved to a one-card draw, but now I'm, you know, it's not like you're going to get me to break because you raised or something. It's like, you, you drew two. And I, you know, so then he checks after the second draw, and I bet, and he check raises, and I call, and now he's, like, drawing two still for the last draw. And it's just like, well, what it? Like, these check raises have zero value unless you get me to fold, and that's not happening. Yeah. Because, like, what are uh, you doing? You're uh, still drawing more cards than me, buddy. What's the what's the yeah. deal? And then, you know, if you were behind me, you might get some value. Because, like, maybe I, you know, instead of padding behind you with a nine on the last draw, I'll, I would break it and try to, you know, oh, this nine probably is no good. Let me draw. And now you and I are both drawing. There might yeah. be some value to your raise. But when you have to tell me first what you're going to do... <laughs> It's a but, tough sell. You know, like, tough it's, story yeah. to sell. And this is limit. This is not like this is no limit where you could check raise all in and maybe get me to fold something. Yeah, you're getting so infinite pot odds. You're never folding to the check raise because um, you have just, great yeah, odds. It's silliness, but it's like okay, thank you. I appreciate free money. You know, it's only and you know if, if this were pot limit or no limit, and they were making big raises, it it could work. Yeah. It, this is a fairly fairly big mix game as well with these silly hands happening. Um, I want to go a little bit back in time to the lead up to the WSOP in your poker career. You mentioned that you were a patent lawyer. You got theory of poker. And then what was the next step after theory of poker and you're like immersing yourself in this poker world? Really, I was just a very serious amateur there for quite a while. So I would play in these smaller games, and I didn't move up to bigger games until I won my way up. So back then, with it all being limit poker, for the first several years, I'm spending almost all my time playing 3-6 limit. Because that was the main game you found anywhere you went back then, as opposed to like the 1-2 no limit games that you see today. And then, you know, it's like, oh, you know, my bankroll's getting a little bigger. I can take a shot at a 10-20 game. Or when I was living in, in uh, the San Diego County area, they had a pot limit game, which was very unusual back then. We're talking the 90s, mid-90s, uh, you know, a, a, an actual, like, real casino with a pot limit or no limit game was almost unheard of. And they had one every day. And I would could take a shot at that because you could buy in for just 100 bucks in this, like, three, five blind pot limit hold'em game. And uh, so I might take a shot at that and, you know, play tournaments and stuff and just kind of work my way up. I took a job with Pfizer. So I moved to Connecticut and then I was playing at Foxwoods and Mohegan Sun. Foxwoods back then had one tournament per day, every day. And it was stud or limit hold'em six days a week. And Tuesday was no limit. And I would always play the tournament on Tuesday night. And then Friday or Saturday, I'd usually go in and play cash. Was was the and, did the no limit tournament get more registration? Yeah. Like it, it was more yeah. popular. It was. It was. It got really big when I first moved there. It was late '98, and you know we're talking fifty to hundred entries. But it was like originally it was twenty five plus ten, and then you could do unlimited rebuys and a single or double add on at the end of the rebuy period for 20 bucks per mm -hmm. and the average person was putting you know 60 70 80 into the prize pool um up 
till you know like oh i mean when it really started taking off in 03 and stuff after chris was on tv with his win chris moneymaker um we would they would they would be like selling out and stuff like oh you know we, we can't take any more entries you know so turning people away and you, you might have as many as 250 people i mean i won that tournament several times you know where you know you you'd be putting in 50 bucks and first prize would be ten thousand. Looking back on it, it's really funny to me. It kind of boggles the mind that, like, I can't imagine the stud tournaments were getting that much traction, right? It's like, why are you limiting this to no. one day a week? No, no, no. It, it, they were still very popular. Um, when I moved to Connecticut, and you would go to Foxwoods, and if you looked around, and if they, let's say, had 40 cash games going, 35 of them were stud. Oh, yeah, for sure. I believe that. Um so when I started playing, tournaments man. were popular, and I think the only reason the no limit tournament was popular was because that was like what they played in the main event. Yeah, and and you know, for most big tournament series, most of the tournaments weren't no limit hold'em, but the main event usually was, just because that's what they did at the World Series. And I, when I when I was started playing in two thousand four, I remember the days of there not being no limit cash games. Everything was limited. It was like five, 10 limit. And then it would be like round and round of 10, 20 hold them, uh, limit hold them. And then Omaha eight or better. And those were like the options. I remember like the first time they spread a no limit game in Florida on the boat. And it was like a thing. It was like a exciting big deal that there was a no limit cash game that was going to be spread on this weekend night. I actually, speaking of Foxwoods casino, it kind of brings me back to the very beginnings of my career. I, fell in love with poker because a friend of mine visited me in probably 2003, the end of 2003. And he had played in like a 2k Foxwoods event and he had gotten like 24th and he had like his poker gear on his like headphones and he had his Walkman and his sunglasses. And he's like, I'm like, what's all this stuff, man? He's like, Oh, it's my poker gear. And he like shows me this like printout he's got. And he's like, I got like 24th for like $3,000 in this tournament. And like, I think Amir Vahidi won it. There was like Amir Vahidi, Huxied, and Kathy Liebert uh, all placed high. And he was like telling the story about playing against Huxied. And he's like, you know, Huxied would be like Johnny Chan. If, you know, he, he could play the Johnny Chan character in Rounders. He's like a world champion and just next level, awesome guy. And like, it was there that I kind of fell in love with all the poker stories and the personalities and this this was uh directly after moneymaker but before your run the next year i think that that year was sort of when i became a professional was like that i believe it was like march i moved to florida and and played cards for about six months before i moved back home and haven't really had a job since but like yeah the the foxwoods and those tournaments i mean they were highly appealing to me coming up and um so you're you're battling in these tournaments you you won this weekly tournament at foxwoods enjoying yourself right no limit hold'em did it appeal to you more so than like the stud tournaments mostly because i had a much bigger edge um you know as we know poker players today are all much more skillful so it doesn't matter what level you're at. If you even talk about the worst players out there today, they are much, much better than the worst players who we were facing back then before, you know, the poker boom. And it was just easier 
to take advantage of them in No Limit. Um, I've been reading some of my old poker books and stuff and, uh, you know, some of the old classics. And, you know, here's Mason Malmuth talking about, like, why poker rooms shouldn't even offer No Limit as a cash game. Oh, yeah. And his point was just that, like, your bad players are going to go broke too quick. And they're not going to have enough winning sessions and they're not going to want to come back. And, and there is some truth to that. And I, you know, it's funny that even though poker is much, much bigger now than it was before the boom, when you look at the games going at the poker rooms around the country, the average size of the game is actually smaller, I think, than it used to be. You know, it's hard to find a game bigger than like two, five, no limit hold them almost anywhere in the country. Really? I mean, if you're, if you're at a big poker room, but the majority of the poker rooms, you know, as I travel around and, and go places, anything bigger than that is just very uncommon. Wow. I, mean, I didn't know that actually. I mean, I used to do lots of appearances at like Daytona beach kennel club used to visit them several times a year and they'd have 50 games going and there would be like a two, five game. And that's it. Like the one, two, five game, or maybe two of them and nothing bigger than that really almost ever. It is so Even funny. Like, we're there for the HPT. It's like bringing people in from out of town and they still don't get bigger cash games going. That's, that's very surprising to me. And it's funny that you mentioned the Daytona kennel club of all the poker rooms on the planet, because that is the, that, is the first time I played real live poker was in that Daytona Kennel Club when I was like 19 years old and it was like $2 poker. So limit $2, that was it. Yeah, they, yeah, they used to have the, the rules limiting the size of the games severely. It's like I moved here to North Carolina in 05 and it's like my wife wanted better weather than Connecticut and we wanted a good place for our daughter to grow up which is why we didn't go to like LA or Vegas. And at that time, still in 05, Florida did not have any real poker. They just had these super tiny, you know, games with the severe cap on the size. So that, in other words, there was no reason to go to Florida for poker. Yeah. I mean, you know, go forward in time a few years when they open things up more and now you can play games of whatever size you want, you know, it's not a question of what you want to do anymore. It's a question of, are there enough other people that want to do the same thing with you to make the game go? And and I'm not saying that if I go to some of these major poker rooms, if I go to Seminole Hard Rock, that I'm you're not going to find some bigger games, or that if I go to Borgata, or if I go to the, you know, Commerce and the Bike, or so on. But when you just travel around, and it's like I'm doing a seminar, or I'm playing a circuit event, or an HPT, or whatever... And I'm going to poker rooms in, you know, Missouri and, 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 you know, East Chicago and stuff like that, because they generally don't have bigger games, maybe occasionally, maybe one, but it just, and I think part of it is that, you know, if you're not a strong, you know, one of the much better players, then you cannot even break even playing those like one, two games. Well, the and rake, the rake is just, a big deal there too. The rake is also a factor. The rake is higher than it used to be. And, and you know, but the rake is probably not higher than it used to be relative to inflation. You know, if you ignore the size of the game being played and just look at the rake, it's probably 
with inflation or below inflation for the adjustment. But it's still just, you know, someone cannot really like move up stakes very easily anymore. Yeah, it's, you know, it's hard to come in as like a, as an, you know, like if I, what I was doing, I'm a full-time lawyer playing a couple of days a week. It was going to be a lot harder for me to build a bankroll today and be playing one, two and stuff, and then move up to two, five, and then move up to five, 10 and so on. That would be much harder to do for a variety of reasons, but I think it would be easier if limit games were more popular. I am so thankful that limit games are not more popular. They, I, I, oh, they drive me insane. I don't know why they've never appealed to me, but they've just always felt very mechanical. Yeah. And like, I, you know, I, I know that there's so much strategy and there's a depth to them. I think for I'm me, not ignoring you. My, my cat jumped on the desk and wants some attention. So. Oh, I totally understand. I've got four of them and I have a, I've got this spray bottle right now in my back pocket for when the cat tries to jump on my tower and shut off my computer in mid sentence. But um, yeah, limit hold'em or limit games typically have not appealed to me. I love the strategic aspect of being able to bet anything. That variable has just particularly appealed to me uh, as a, as a human being. Um, And, And that all makes sense. But I just think the majority of players, even if they prefer no limit personally, I think they'll be better off in, in several ways if hey. they were playing limit. Now, I'm not trying to say that you shouldn't do what you want, but I'm saying that like when I do go places that have both, that have a decent selection of limit games and bigger bet games, the people in the limit games always seem to be having a lot more fun. That's and a good point. Not just, not just because it's a smaller, like a lower stakes. Like you could have the people in the limit game and they're playing, you know, 40, 80 limit. They're having more fun than the people playing one, two, no limit on average. So it seems like they have more fun. And and my theory for that is just that like your friend with his gear, he's like, Oh, you know, my headphones and this and that, you know, like, but when you're playing limit, you don't need to do that stuff. You don't need to cover up and hide your tails and don't look in my eyes and don't see my lips and, and all that because like you said, a lot of the decisions are somewhat automatic. It's like, you know, I bet the river and you have a hand that will beat all my bluffs, but really not much of anything else. Given the size of the pot, you're probably supposed to call, even if you see a tell that makes you think I'm strong. Like, yeah, I think he's strong, but still, I only have to be right here, you know, six, 7% of the time. And this is a good call. And I'm not that confident in my read. Whereas in, no limit i'm betting 50 to 100 percent of the pot now your read on me could be hugely important in changing your decision so since so many of the decisions are are more automatic you're not as worried about hiding tells and so when you and i are sitting here talking about the the game on the tv and we're now in a pot we don't stop talking about you know oh those damn so-and-so's dropping the ball whatever like we still talk and then I'm like, oh, it's on me, Raise, you know, and I toss my chips out and, you know, and then we're like the game, the game. And I'm like, oh, it's on me again. Uh, yeah, I call and whatever. It's like, we're not as worried about it. So we, we stay more social, more interactive, I think. And it's therefore more fun. And, you know, you're making money at poker, but how many people are? 
in these games you're playing in. Less than 10%. Most of them, whether they admit it or not, are there to have fun. Sure. So if they were playing limit poker, I think they would have more fun per hour. And since they would probably lose slower, they get to play more hours on the same budget. Yeah, and so I think, I think I, there, there's a lot of wisdom there in, in that. Um, there, there's also, you know, when you play mixed games, you have, you know, variety is the spice of life. And I think there's something to be said yeah. for switching up and playing different games and not just like, you know, sitting in this circle playing the same game 24 hours a day. That can get a little uh, mind-numbing or boring. So, like, there, there are certainly some positives for the mixed games and the limit hold'em games. Um, yep. Just and and I, I I certainly understand that if more people played like, them, maybe the the ecosystems would would be better. If, too. if I was in charge of a poker room, yeah, it's not that I would not spread no limit. Like you come in, you want no limit, and there's all these other people that want it. We're going right. to give you what you want. But when I'm trying to figure out how am I going to spend my promotional fund, stuff like that. I'm going to try to steer you and the other players into trying out more of the limit games because I think that I will eventually can convince you that this is more fun. You're doing it whether you realize it or not, you know? And so again, it's not that I'm not going to give you what you want as a customer, but I am going to try to help you understand that like, I think you'll have more fun over here. Yeah. you're, Um, you're You're actually doing a good job of convincing me that I, I ought to be playing some some limit games when I hop into a card room someday in the future, well, just for you, you, the, the social. If you make more money at no limit, and you're playing for a living, you got to do, you know, the, you you probably need to pick the game that's the most profitable, you know. And if they were close, but you know, if you had some guy that you know could afford to lose whatever a thousand a month. And he's losing his thousand dollars to you the first time he shows up on the first of the month. It's like, is he going to keep coming back on the first of the month with his thousand dollars month after month after month? Or is he going to say, I'm tired of this shit. They must be cheating me. He's going to come up with some reason not to do it anymore. But if instead you were playing limit and his thousand dollars lasted him for many visits to the poker room, you'd still end up with his thousand bucks. You'd still win it from him. It would just take longer and he might stay and play more. And I think maybe some people, if this is a smaller game, they would build their bankroll quicker and then be able to move up to the bigger games and so on. So I think it would be better for almost everyone. But there might be some people, like, and you might be one of them, who would be like, no, no, I'd be worse off if all these other guys started preferring limit. That I don't might think be so. worse for your bottom line. I don't know. I don't think but so. I think it would be better for at least 90, if not 98% of the players who go to the public poker rooms around the country i think the vast the vast majority would be better if they started playing limit i think they would whether they realize it or not they'd be better off what's very what's interesting about what what you said is like in my career i'm i'm a specialist so i'm cash game no limit hold'em specialist this is where i've put in my time it's where i've honed my craft it's my bread and butter and the reason why i've stuck with being a specialist is because I can quantify my edge in any game that I'm playing in. I know exactly um, what I ought to be earning 
it, my hourly rate. I know exactly all the things. And if I move, because this is my living and how I derive my income and pay my bills and take care of the people that I need to, it is scary switching to a game that you do not know what your hourly rate is. You do not know what your expected EV is. So that's sort of the ambiguity effect can come into play. And I think I would say that like if the options were limited and I didn't have a choice, like I could choose to go sit in a different game playing against a bunch of the old no limit fish, then it's quite possible that I would choose to play in that limit game. Just knowing that like fundamentally my theory, I'm pretty confident in that I'm going to be able to outthink them and that they're going to be making mistakes or there there is an edge to be had here. Um, It's just that opportunity never presents itself because almost all the games are no limit. Well, I mean, given your particular situation, my thought would just be this. If if you were to be going to a poker room and your normal no limit game isn't good today, you know, maybe you tend to play in some of the bigger no limit games at your local poker room or something like that. If your normal game isn't good today, like, oh, wow, you know, like some of the regular fish, they're not, none of them are here. It's it's all tough players. It's the game's tight. <clears throat> it's not going to be a you know big hourly today. Then maybe check out some of the other games if there are other options. Right. And even if that means railing, like oh, I don't know those mixed games. They're playing some Badusi and whatnot here. So rail it, watch it, see what you see, and learn how they're playing those games. You know, it was funny. I I used to play a lot of these big mixed games when I would be traveling more. Like when more of the big tournaments were in Vegas, WPTs and stuff like that. I was there several times a year. And if I wasn't in the tournament anymore, I would be playing some of these, you know, like 400, 800 mixed games and stuff like that. And you're sitting there in the Bellagio poker room. And and I would look over like maybe this next table over is 4080 limit hold'em. And I'd be like, that game is so much tougher than my game. Because most of the pros don't have the bankroll to sit in this game. So it's me, it's one or two other pros that have the money. And then it's some really rich guys that prefer these games. And so that's what we're playing. And in other words, I was going to win more big blinds per hour in the 400, 800 game than if I moved over to that 4080 limit hold'em table. Oh yeah, it's a common misconception that like the bigger you play, the worse the games get because there's a barrier to entry to these big games that are is prohibitive to a lot of the full-time poker pros. Like they just don't have the bankroll. And so that means that they're excluded by nature and the guys that do have access to people who where 400 800 is like absolutely nothing to them. It does remind me, though, of a good friend of mine. He switched games, and this is uh, contrary to your uh, (laughs) the wisdom of railing the game. He went from playing 10-20 No Limit Hold'em one day to just moving tables at the Commerce to playing 20-40 and 20-40-80 PLO, knowing absolutely nothing about PLO. The only thing he realized were that the fish that played No Limit had moved to that game, and he's like, I think I'm just going to follow them over there one day. And then he never came back. He was just PLO for life. Yeah. And to be honest, he, he, if he, if he, if he becomes a great PLO player, his edge might be even bigger, you know, in terms of like big blinds per hour or something, you know, some of the 
stuff in PLO is a little less obvious to the to the not so skilled player. So there's some mistakes they're going to make over and over again and never really learn. Yeah, like Queen and Jack four four. We can maybe justify playing that from early position uh, as a fish and then hold them. They're just never playing Jack three off anymore. Oh yeah. No, I've, I mean if you want a funny PLO story, I was playing a satellite at the World Series one summer. And we are down to like 14 people. So like seven at two different, seven each at two tables with 12 seats being awarded. And the, we were playing, I forget if it was five or $10,000 in Lammers because then the next day's event was either the five or 10K PLO tournament. And I was like the second shortest stack in the field. The shortest stack was on my right. And then the guy on his other side had like four or five times the average deck. Like he absolutely can fold his way to a seat. And it was clear he really wasn't a very good poker player in general, nor a good PLO player, nor a good satellite player. (laughs) He had been talking, like it might've been an hour. He'd been talking about how like, well, I guess, you know, they say like, once you get enough chips in a satellite, you should just fold everything. Like there, you know, like there's like, you just, you know, fold, fold, fold all your hands. And then he'd be like, Oh, I, I can't fold this. And he'd play <laughs> a hand. And um, so now, like I said, we're two from the money and this guy raises pot. So three and a half blinds, his whole stack is like five blinds. And I look down and I have like really good double suited aces, like ace, ace, jack nine, double suited. So I re-raise pot. So I'm making it 12 blinds and my whole stack was like 14. So he's almost all in for his three and a half. I'm almost all in for like the 12 and it folds around to this guy and he hasn't looked at his cards and he's like, well, I guess I'm supposed to fold no matter what. And he looks at his cards and he's just like, I can't. Yeah. And finally he's just like, and then he's looking at our stacks again and he's like, ah, I'll just raise enough to put you guys all in. And the dealer's like, well, sir, you, you can't really do that. But since you said raise, I'm going to make you raise the minimum, which was enough to put us. And we both called. So I have my double suited aces. This guy has double suited kings. And he has, again, like king, king, queen, eight double suited or something, you know, decent kings double suited. And this guy with the big stack is like, oh, my God, I can't believe it. You guys, you know, he, here's the hand he turns over, right? He has Jack Jack seven three with the seven three suited. <laughs> so when he thinks he's supposed to fold basically everything, uh-huh. that's the hand that he thinks is too good to fold. That's the diamond in the rough. And and I was just like, like I don't even think that's an above average hand. <laughs> like like it's it's not even in the top half of all starting yeah. hands, uh-huh. let alone like this hand's too good to fold when I'm supposed to fold everything. Yeah. And then, of course, because it's a poker story, the flop comes like 7-7. He knocks us both out, and everyone wins their seat. Everyone else wins their seat. But, I mean, I'm not trying to complain about the bad beat. It's just so funny that, like, when he said, I guess I'm just I'm supposed to fold basically, you know, everything. Yeah. But this hand's too good to fold. It's the equivalent of, like, queen-seven off. 
You're just like, oh, yeah. I, I got to fold yeah. them all. Oh, but this one, oh my God, I can't believe that exactly. this moment is such a, this is torturous. I got, I have, I guess I have to call. I got the queen of the seven guys. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's the thing. I don't think that guy would have ever made that mistake with, you know, the queen seven or even make it queen nine offsuit. Yeah. A, a hand that's definitely above average. It's not great, but it's better than average. Even that he wouldn't think, oh, can't fold this. You know, I'm supposed to fold. I'm supposed to fold almost everything, but can't fold queen nine. Like <laughs> no, even the really bad holding player would not do that. But this guy just didn't understand, and that's one reason PLO can be a great game. It's the only real negative about PLO for anyone is the variance is so much higher. Yeah, that uh, you know, I mean, yeah, if your game is full of guys like that who are calling raises preflop with hands that really hard to hit then you could guarantee a win fairly often but you there's also other games in plo i've noticed that you can win with somewhat low variance and that's when guys are just playing too tight um they're flopping equity and then they're just folding uh they fold out their equity i'm I'm not familiar with i'm not familiar with that kind of player in the plo games i've seen so like i used to play in a plo game when nobody knew anything this is maybe 2005 and i didn't know much but like they would call a lot of pre-flop raises, and then if they flop top set, they would go absolutely apeshit. And if they flop like top sure. pair, they would typically just fold. Like they were waiting for like top two plus all the time. Well, and then so when that's, it, that's yeah, that's not typical though of PLO games that I've ever seen. Yeah, I guess it was just like that uh, region, the ecosystem in the world where P, uh, PLO was introduced and, and it wasn't I've been common. Playing, uh, quite a bit of plo the last few years because that's what's popular in the home games around here mm-hmm. and so like there's several home games i've played in that are like five five blind plo usually with a button straddle one game i played in the most it's mandatory button straddle and the button straddle doesn't have to be 10 it's usually like 10 to 50 or 10 to 100 depending upon the game. So you'd have players that are consistently straddling their button for a hundred bucks in a five, five blind game. And uh, let's just put it like this. We had a six way all in one time where I looked around at everyone's hands and I was the only player that had an ACE. (laughs) I mean, six, six ways all in pre-flop and the five of them did not have a single ACE in any of their hands. And I was only all in with my hand because I had gotten kind of short stacked in the game. Yeah. And I had like ace, three, four, five, double suited. It was kind of like, oh, well, my cards might be quite live. You got an ace. high only. (laughs) Six ways, you got an ace. It turned out like, well, geez, like there's a chance here. I could just flop an ace and my ace with a five kicker is going to scoop this pot. There is some chance of that happening. Yeah, um, it's interesting. So it was, it was just like I said. It's people were it, it, way too loose rather than ever too tight in any of the games I've seen for PLO. It was like they were loose preflop. I would make it seventy five in the dark, and like I was crushing the hold'em games. And these were guys I had played with, and so they didn't have much knowledge of PLO. I'm making it seventy five in the dark and never getting three bet ever like never getting three bet. And then like they check to me 
and I'm just making my read and I'll see that like 60% of the pot and it's just like full, 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 full. And that was like uh, just a typical. You're, you're right. It's a super game. low variance print money game, but uh, if Rare. any of our viewers find such a game, I won't be surprised if none of them ever do. <laughs> yeah. Again, this was 2000, maybe 2006 yeah. at a country club uh, type home game in my hometown. Um I mean that that would be hard to find and hold them, let alone in PLO. Oh, for sure. That people that people are just like, oh, I don't have top pair better. I always fold to, to your C bet. And much more profitable in PLO though, because like I like if they're not raising, then it's like I get to rep all the things. <laughs> like a flush completes yeah. or a straight completes, like cool, I get to rep that now. Um, so there's a lot of fold equity realization on my part just by outright aggression. Before boot camp, I had been playing for maybe 15 years, somewhat seriously, always trying to get better, jumping from learning program to different learning programs and training site to training site, kind of feeling a little bit lost, not really knowing how to go about getting better. And pre-flop boot camp just felt like a great starting point, a way for me to to move from being a losing player to, to possibly a winning player. It felt like the right first step. Once you jumped in boot camp, what was your experience like? Well, first off, I realized that I'd been making a lot of mistakes prior to boot camp, kind of learning what ranges should look like and what hands should be played and what situations. You know, it was it was exciting because I I could see what other people had been doing to me, what kind of what I had been missing in my game. And then from there, just the whole camaraderie of everybody that's um, signed up, working together, trying to achieve that goal. You know, that, that was fun. That's uh, pushing each other and really helping uh, one another, kind of feeling like you're a part of a team. It was, uh, it was a great experience. I, I enjoyed the process and I learned a lot. What was your experience like playing cards post boot camp? It's a totally different experience. You know, it put me in a position to be successful as opposed to always being behind the eight ball and, and playing catch up. Um, I really feel like it's it's the foundation of, of a solid poker game. And uh, since boot camp, I've been able to, to turn a profit and keep building on what I learned there. You know, being able to go back into the group and uh, re- really work together even after boot camp was over, it's it's been awesome. What's your sample size of winning post boot camp? I think I have 70,000 hands played by now. You know, I'm a father and I have a job, so I'm not a, a professional player by any means. That's my sample size. Preflop Bootcamp is the flagship Chasing Poker Greatness training program. If you'd like to dramatically upgrade your preflop game, a new bootcamp launches on the last Saturday of every single month. The price is $199 and your link to join is ChasingPokerGreatness.com slash bootcamp. One more time, that's ChasingPokerGreatness.com slash bootcamp, all one word, or you can click through in the description box of this episode. I do want to go back. I've taken us, we've, I've taken us way off course here. And I, I just want to lead up to the main event. How'd you win your seat? Was that the first year that you had played the main event? Um, no, I had played the main event every year now since 2002. So I played in 02 and 03 and then, you know, had my great week in 04 to win it. Um, I did win my seat in 2004 on Poker Stars, but I was already going. 
So to me, winning that online tournament was basically winning 11,000 bucks as opposed to winning a seat. I literally had <coughs> already, <coughs> excuse me, I had already booked my flight. I had a room reserved at, at Binion's. You could get a room for 25 bucks a night. So it was like, in fact, that was part of the deal with Poker Stars that uh, they were taking uh, 11,000 from the prize pool. And the 10,000 seat, that was still back when it was a must play. So you never saw the 10,000. Like after the, you win the online tournament, you get an email asking for your legal name and address and so on. And they are going to register you. And then you would show up at their suite at Binion's to get your receipt and your seat card. And then if you signed their agreement that you would wear their logo throughout the tournament, you got a free hotel room for like four or five days. And their hotel, though, I think they were at the Treasure Island that year. It was someplace that was not downtown. And, and I remember seeing in the email, like, oh, in the free hotel. And I was just like, I don't want to stay there. Like, I hadn't planned on getting a rental car. And then it's like, and I don't want to try and take taxis back and forth. So now I'm going to, you know, and I'm, I'm like, I would rather just stay on site and have the convenience. So I was emailing them like, like, hey, if, can I sign the deal and, can, you know, and they were like, well, well, we'll just give you the cash value of the room instead. So when I showed up and signed the deal, they also then transferred like another 800 bucks to my account. So great. You know, I'd much rather have the cash than, than that hotel room that I have to drive back and forth. And, you know, so I, the only reason, like, if you look at the final table, I'm not wearing the logo because we were prohibited from wearing logos at the final table. But throughout the tournament, you would see plenty of people wearing you know, online poker site logos and stuff. And, uh, you know, in hindsight, it was great because that also set me up. I mean, they immediately offered me a great job representing the site after I won. And uh, that's the only reason I quit my job, actually, was because of that. Um, you know, if you were for Corona and you won the main event this summer like you were supposed to have, yeah, you probably don't get much of a sponsorship deal from anybody correct it just that's not the way it is nowadays um maybe if you are from the right country where poker is you know like if you were from india you'd probably get offered some good deals because poker is starting to grow in a big way there and there'd be a site that would want you to represent them but unless you were from the right country maybe if you were female you're not you'll get maybe offered something but not much and and I always tell people when they ask me, and I've been asked this question at least a thousand times since 04, like, I'm thinking of quitting my job or quitting school and what advice do you have for me? And my always, I always say to them, don't do it. Like if, you know, if you live someplace where you can't get access to the poker games you want to play on a regular basis, then stay in your career, but like, change jobs and move someplace that has more poker. So if you were uh, an accountant, like let's say Chris Moneymaker, you know, if you were an accountant, I'd be like, oh, there's not enough games for you to play like here in Raleigh, North Carolina. We don't have any public poker at all. Then get a job as an accountant someplace that does have games. Go to LA, Vegas, you know, Miami, Tampa, St. Louis. I mean, tons of, you know, places that have several poker rooms. And then you'll have access to the games and you can still keep your job. 
so even if I had, you know, won all the money and everything, if I hadn't been offered this job that was paying even more money than Pfizer was paying me to, to be an attorney, I would have, you know, not quit practicing as a lawyer. I would have kept that job. How do you feel I about just, that that decision? I, um, in hindsight, are you still happy that you? You went to poker. Yeah, I mean, it was still a, it was still a, a, a valid economic choice, even though I stopped representing poker stars 10 years ago now, because the money they were paying me was quite a bit more than I was making at Pfizer. So I still made more money in that period of time than I would have made over these last 15 years if I'd still been working as a lawyer. So in that sense, it was a, a good decision. Um, if I hadn't had that opportunity to represent them or some other site, what I, pr- I probably would have quit my job with Pfizer, but I would have opened a solo practice. So I would have worked as a lawyer out of my home, try to solicit, you know, people like you, anyone with uh, an invention, especially in my area was biotechnology. So I might have reached out to companies like all the biotech companies that were just a couple hours away from me up in the Boston area and stuff like that kind of like, hey, you know, here I am, 12 years experience, da-da-da, you know, and I can work for you and I'll be much cheaper than if you hire one of the big firms. So you hire one of those big firms in Boston that does patent law, they're billing it four, five, six hundred dollars an hour, and hey, come hire me and I'll do it for two or three hundred dollars an hour. Still good and money. And I can do that. Yeah, great money. Do it half time and then still have plenty of time to like travel to the World Series and travel to the occasional other tournament. And, and if I didn't get enough games that I, you know, if the games that I wanted to play locally weren't as good as I, you know, if Foxwoods and Mohegan, Mohegan actually had been closed at the time when I won, they didn't reopen until a few years later. But if, if I decided these games at Foxwoods weren't good enough, it's like, well, if I already have some clients, I could move somewhere else. So I could have still relocated someplace with better poker games. Or my wife could have said, I want better weather. I'd be like, okay, we can still move here to Raleigh. And, you know, most of my work with these clients in Boston, it's done by email and phone calls anyways. So what does it matter? And if I do have to be there face-to-face, then I can fly up on my own dime and still come out ahead. But, you know, if anyone listened to this is like, oh, I think I'm pretty good at poker. I'm going to quit my job. And it'd be like, no, 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 do it part time. I played more poker when I was a lawyer than I do now. <laughs> Quite honestly. Um, and that's partially because I'm here in Raleigh, where, again, it's, you know, there's no poker rooms anywhere close by. But even if I had moved to Vegas or something, it's kind of like, you know, it's not like I was... I'm not necessarily going to be driving to one of the poker rooms every day to just play the regular two five game or something like, eh, yeah, whatever. Yeah. I'm going to get bored with that. It only be when like the mixed games are going or something that I'd want to show up. And even back then in 04, 05, 06, those games generally happen during a big tournament event, not just 24 seven all year yeah. long. Yeah. Um, so I still, it's not like I would have been going to the poker room for hours a day even if I'd lived in one of those places. So it's still just, you know, keep the job or stay in school, get the degree, get the job, do it as a serious hobby. If it gets to the point where you're literally just 
foregoing tons of money because you can't play full time, then think of quitting your job. Because, I mean, the problem is, even if you are plenty good, and that's the thing, most of these people that ask me, I don't know anything about their game, but I can still guess with a really high certainty that most of them are not good enough. They're not actually good enough to make a living at it. I've even had some of them say like, oh, maybe I break even, but I figured if I could play full time, then that would change. I'm like, why would that change? Just playing more doesn't make you better. It's the studying. It's the things you do when you're not playing that improve your game and make you better. So if you don't have time to do those things now, then you must not really want to improve enough. You know, and that means you'll, you'll play more if you quit your job, but you probably still won't do those practice and training things. Yeah, the grass um, is always greener. And, and if they are good enough, which is, again, going to be a very small percentage of those who ask me, a lot of them will have the skill, but, like, will they always play their A game? Do they go on tilt too easy? How will they handle a losing streak? Will they still play their A game when they've had, you know, a month or two of, of losing sessions? Um, are they going to avoid all the leaks of betting on sports or playing in, you know, playing in the pit and losing their money, playing craps and stuff. Strip clubs, drugs. Yeah. Partying and and spending it. And then there's so many people too, like they hit a big win and then they go and buy something, you know, extravagant, you know, a new car, a $20,000 watch or whatever. I've seen people who like go broke in a winning year. Yeah. This, this is like the first Mike Carroll lesson. They win this much. And then they spend that much of it and then they lose. And it's like, wait, you still like, you know, at poker, you still won this for the year, but you spent that. And because at one point you were way up and, you know, so that all that kind of stuff happens. And then finally, I have met many people over the years who are like, they make it, they don't have the leaks, they have the skills skill but they're like i've been doing this for 10 years 15 years and i'm just sick of it i don't i'm bored i don't want to do it anymore but what job am i going to get now i'm I'm, you know i'm 35 i'm 45 whatever and i haven't had a real job on my resume for 10 or more years like what kind of job what kind of career am i possibly going to get into now with this huge hole in my resume and and that's the other thing so finally even if you know when you're talking to me and asking me this, that like I am good enough and I won't lose it on sports betting or drugs or partying and or anything else. You really can't say that you won't necessarily get bored with it after doing it full time for 10, 15 years. Yeah. I mean, if that's the case, like, and you're hell bent on doing it, at least start thinking of an exit strategy way in advance so that you do have some sort of, uh, out yeah. out from the game if you do eventually get bored, which I promise you, you probably will after 15 years, especially if you're playing the same game over and over. Yeah. Um, I mean, Joe Hashem had a good thing going in a sense, and it wasn't really for this same reason, but like when you, when he won, technically he was a mortgage broker as a profession. In reality, he supported his family playing poker. He was just a winning cash game player in Australia And that's how he took care of his family. But his wife did not like, you know, if someone's asking you, what does your husband do for a living? Like, oh, you've got four kids. You're a stay-at-home mom. What does your husband do? She doesn't want to say poker player. 
And basically, more to appease her than anything else, he had this job as a mortgage broker. But all that really amounted to was when he was at the table playing and Brad talking about buying a house, he'd be like, well, here's my card. I can help you get a mortgage. And then when you called, he would essentially just turn you over to one of his coworkers. And if you got the mortgage through his coworker, he got a cut. So he's he an affiliate. Now, yeah, he could now still, you know, say mortgage broker and he could put it on his resume. And, you know, and if you were his prospective new employer and you called that company and was like, and they could verify, yes, Joe was a licensed mortgage broker for us from this year to that year. So in other words, it's all real. It's legit. It just wasn't his primary source of income or close to it. And then and the, so if you're going to play poker full time, maybe you do something like that, like make a little bit of money as a realtor. Yeah, just don't don't go blow your cover by winning the main event and being famous in Australia for being a poker player. Well, right, but if you win the main event, hopefully you'll bank enough money to not have to get that real job again 10 or 15 years later if you get bored with poker. But if you are quitting your job to play poker, then find a way to like, do something that sounds legitimate, so to speak. And I don't mean to say poker is illegitimate, but you know what I mean? Do yeah. something that might look reasonable to a prospective employer. So you can put that on your resume and you're not lying. Like when you say I was a mortgage broker or I was this, I was that, you know, here's what I was doing. I mean, I still do the occasional patent job for people. I really couldn't say to an employer, though, that like, oh, I was like self-employed, you know, patent agent for the last 15 years. You know, that I couldn't legitimately say because it'd be too much like, well, geez, look at all these things I can, you know. Yeah. What about the, all these tournaments that you're playing in and winning? And yeah. like, uh, where's the revenue? How much money have you made doing this? You're like, oh, I don't know. Yeah. You know, but like I, I still do the I mean, I'm actually not a lawyer, but I'm still a patent agent. So it's like to be a lawyer, you have to pay dues to the state bar and you have to do the continuing legal education, like 25, 30 hours a year of, of this CLE. And I stopped doing all that. And so I got disbarred. Now, if I will pay them like 15 years of back dues and make up like four or 500 hours of CLE, they'll let me back in since I didn't do anything unethical to become disbarred. It's gotten to the point now, though, that if I wanted to get my license back, it would be quicker and cheaper for me to just pass the bar exam again. Yeah. Like instead of 400 hours of CLE, <clears throat> excuse me, instead of 400 hours of CLE, it would be like a hundred hours of studying. What does CLE stand for? Continuing legal education. Okay. Almost every state in this country requires some certain number of hours per year that even though you're a full-time working lawyer, you have to do this formal training to keep up with your knowledge base. Yeah, it's a lot the of industry. The thing is that there are, there's no real requirement. Like I was a biotech patent lawyer. I could put in my 30 hours doing like CLE about real estate law that I'm never going to practice. And I would still meet the requirements, even though it had nothing to do with making me any better at my actual job. Yeah, which is kind of defeats but, the purpose of it, right? Yeah, it'd be like, you know, if you went to a, dermatologist and they were doing all of their continuing medical education on you know 
cardiovascular issues. You'd be like, well, that did not help you keep up with all the latest knowledge in the area of dermatology. And since I'm coming to you for dermatological advice, I'd rather you were up to date on that stuff. See, I I love that we've come full circle here to an analogy um, from the very beginning of the show. The listener isn't uh, aware we talk for 10 minutes on (laughs) analogies and metaphors (laughs) and uh, how, you know, maybe sometimes they're not exactly how how they're effective at resonating in our minds because we're storytelling creatures. Greg, I I do, you know, before we, before we call this today, I I have some lightning round questions um, that I'd like to ask you. And uh, the first one, if you could gift all poker players, one book to read doesn't have to be about poker what would it be and why well the immediate selfish answer is my book (laughs) Uh, fossil man's winning tournament strategies and and hopefully uh you know anyone who plays tournaments i'm gonna highly recommend it i mean obviously not unbiased but if i was actually going to do this and it would be for everyone oh shoot i'm i'm so my memory is so weak i swear Worst part of my brain. Um, I know the author's name, Nassim Taleb. And he had his book uh, Black Swan, Anti Fragile. Like it was, it was, what was his first one that got him some fame? Nassim Taleb. That's the one I've read. Because that was, uh, you know, the book that basically talked about, basically talked about how bad we all are at math, things like <laughs> the laws of large numbers and stuff like that, and. You know, fooled by randomness. Yes, thank you very much. Fooled by randomness, and and I think a lot of people are fooled by randomness. Um, I think there's a lot of stuff that happens that is truly random, but as humans, we generally don't like it. We don't like the explanation that it's random. We want there to be a reason for everything. Like, why did my you know? Why did my cousin's baby die of some horrible disease soon after they were born? There had to be a reason, you know, whether it's a reason because we want to blame somebody or a reason because we want to understand it, you know, but it's like, no, that's probably just random. You know, it's probably just random bad luck. And it's, it's sad and unfortunate that that would happen to anyone, but if it's going to happen to anyone, then that means it has to happen to somebody. And unless there was a cause like, oh, wait, you know, mom smoked crack during pregnancy or whatever, unless there's something like that to blame, it probably is just random bad luck. And so many things happen in life that are just truly random for good or bad. And yet, you know, people tend to either want to, you know, give credit or blame to someone or something for that event. And and I think that book could help a lot of people understand that there's just a lot of randomness. It's, it's, and also help people understand things that like, hey, you know, thousand to one against something happened and million to one against are two very different things. But most people will just be like, oh, like in either case, they'll be like, oh, well, so it's just not going to happen. Yeah, it's zero. Like, no, no, no. Like one in a thousand if it's a risk you're taking every day, it it should happen to you about once every three years or so. Whereas one in a million, now we're talking very close to zero, that it will ever happen to you. 
but it still happens. (laughs) You know, it still happens to somebody, but now you could say, Oh, if I keep taking this risk once per day, every day, the rest of my life, there's a really good chance it will never happen when it's one in a million, but one in a thousand, it's like, no, no, we would expect that to happen to you several times during your life. If you were taking that chance, that risk every day. And so those are two very different numbers, but a lot of people just like, oh, one in a thousand, one in a million, it won't happen. There, it's funny that you mentioned a book on randomness because we, I have a book club in my Slack group and the, the book club, the book this month is a book called Rock Break Scissors. And it's all about randomness and how human beings, not only are we horrible at discerning random events and making sense of them, we're also horrible at just being random in general. Just oh, yeah. randomizing well, like a horrible. number between one and 10. It's not random and we're totally biased when we do it. Well, if you went and asked people, give me a random number one to a hundred. Well, if we were random, the number 50 would be said, would be, you know, given to you, you know, one out of a hundred times. And if you went and interviewed a million people, it wouldn't even be one in a thousand that would ever say 50. Because it looks... That, that, it doesn't, it doesn't sound look random. random. Yeah. Yeah. 50 doesn't sound random. I'm like, but 50 should be, it should happen just as often as 63. Yeah. Mid 60s is probably going to happen a lot. I would say 101 are probably also not going to come up too frequently. Yeah. People just are going to avoid certain numbers because it doesn't sound random. And there's actually, you know, mathematical modeling for this. And that's something that the IRS will do to try to find tax cheats is they'll look at numbers on your return and like these numbers actually don't appear to be truly random. They look more like the kinds of numbers we get from people who are trying to pretend it's random. Yeah. And therefore it's human generated random. So as what I'll call it, even though it's not random at all. And so literally your return could get flagged just because the numbers on it look like they're human generated random rather than truly random. And understanding this randomness as it relates to poker and like mixed strategies and executing them and understanding like you're not going to execute a mixed strategy with accuracy as a human being. Like if you're supposed to three bet king queen half the time and you're supposed to call half the time, you're going to do one or the other one way more often and you're not going to use it randomly either. It's going to be emotionally driven. Like if you three bet and then you lose a big pot, guess what? you're probably not going to be three betting 50% in the future because your emotions have told you bad shit happens when I do that. So you're, you don't do that as often. And if you do it and it works well and you make a lot of money now, all of a sudden it's not 50% because you're incentivized to do it based on your emotions and past experience. So like, even when you're trying to randomize decisions as a poker player, it is a impossible thing to do correctly. And I just see so many people, screwing it up um really it's just bad information out there of like these pre-flop charts that are like 50 percent called 50 percent raised 25 percent fold 50 percent three bet well even if even if the advice was perfect gto advice like you said it's hard to implement properly if you were actually if i was doing that if i was trying to implement charts like that that i was going to memorize then i would have some kind of random number generator hang like some kind of watch type thing um <clears throat> when andy beale was playing the corporation and the huge multi-million dollar limit hold'em games 
that was part of his thing. He had people working for him, developing, you know, as best they could at that time, GTO strategies for heads up limit hold'em. And and if he was supposed to like, oh, I'm supposed to raise here 80% and call 20%, he had a little random number generator, a little device on his wrist that he could like push a button and it gave him a random number from one to a hundred. And he had gotten, you know, he he disclosed that to the and he said, look, I want to do this. Do you have a problem with it? And they were like, no, you can, we don't care. You can do that. So as he was sitting there all hunched over and covered up with headphones and glasses and, you know, to not give tells off, you know, it'd just be his turn to act. And he'd just, you know, he'd be sitting there, you know, and he'd just push the button and look at the number and then he would do what it, you know. So he knew like, okay, 80 and below I raise and he'd push the button, see the number. And it's like, oh, 50 raise. It, which is actually really a, a pretty, pretty big edge when he has that strategy using it against pros in the moment. That is a fairly, that's an impressive thing for him to create at that time when that game was going that was and his whole that was his whole thing was he was just trying to play gto and you know it was kind of like can i solve this game enough that i'll have an edge on these people even though they're the best in the world maybe at this time and they're trying to play their normal game against him and looking for tells and stuff like that and timing tells and everything else and i think in the end it was kind of a draw I think he ended up losing money in net from all the different sessions, but whatever the final result monetarily, I think if they could have just played a statistically valid sample size, he probably would have broke even or even started, you know, being the, the, the long-term winner in the oh, game. It's a big risk that the corporation took taking him on because if they run bad, I mean, it could have been really bad. He could have really hurt them by running good and it's not like he was just a big whale right like maybe in the beginning he was a whale but then yeah he learned at the beginning he he was he was he was only a whale relative to the stakes and stuff like that and and so on it's not like he was some absolute fish who didn't know what he was doing so even if they had an edge on him in the beginning it wasn't some massive edge yeah it wasn't like you (laughs) we're all whales relative to the best players in the world i think most of us. Well, it's not like it's not like you were at a family gathering and your drunk cousin who doesn't really know poker is challenging you and finally <laughs> to shut him up you played him you know heads yeah. up uh you know ten thousand like now 000. yeah your edge is pretty huge because this is your drunk cousin who doesn't know the game very well so and that's the thing it, at those stakes generally even the whales like whoever was the whale when in the in the so-called big game they used to play regularly back then the 4000 8000 game whoever was the whale it's not like that person wasn't a good poker player um or like when they talk about Guy la liberté being the huge whale for the online poker games back in the day no matter how much money he lost in those games, he's not a bad poker player. And if he was playing his very best, he was going to be able to beat smaller games. So if he walked into the poker room and played, you know, five ten no limit and was, and could actually focus and play his best, which he wouldn't do because it was so small an amount that he didn't care. But like, if you had challenged him to play that game and you guys had a side bet, you know, like, Hey, you got to go play that five ten game for at least six hours, and if you're a net winner, 
I owe you a million, but if you're a net loser, you owe me a million or something. Now, if it was going to focus him and get him to try his best, he probably, you were probably an underdog in that specific wager, you know, as opposed to playing online against the best in the world. And it's like, oh, it's him and Tom Dwan and Phil Ivey. It's like, yeah, now he is supposed to be the long-term loser. Of course, like he's using the worst game selection you could use um, by playing against like the absolute crushers of of the moment. And like, like you said, it, we're incentive driven creatures and there's no incentive for him to play 510 because it wasn't stimulating for him. I will say though, Guy, well done on Cirque du Soleil because that is, it's the most amazing experience. Like we took the kids last year and it was just, they typically sleep at plays and stuff. And like the Cirque is just, an amazing experience. It's no wonder why he's a billionaire because that is a, an amazing, amazing thing that he, that he put together and built and shared with the world. And he apparently sold it at just about the right time. And he got out, got out at the right time too. So he's got out at the right time. So he's playing a lot of games well in life. You know, once you have a certain amount of money, you cannot go broke playing poker because there's no one that's going to play you big enough for you to lose hundreds of millions of dollars. And again, if he's having fun, then even if he did lose a net of 10, 20, 30 million or whatever, I don't know what the rumors are. And I certainly don't know what the truth is, but since to him, that was not an important amount of money, then it was probably fine because, okay, he could have spent all that money on that, or he could have bought like, Oh, a $30 million yacht. Like, did he have more fun playing all those hours of poker or do you have more fun on this yacht? Oh, and you could for sure leverage your money in such a way that you lose 30 million in a day in, you know, trading or whatever, like just some investment gone awry. Like it's like you said, when you have uh, billions of dollars, 30 million doesn't hurt you as much as, you know, if you have 50 million even. Well, okay. You know, an argument I've always proposed, like if you're someone who just, you know, you have fun, you play poker recreationally and, you know, so you're going down and you're playing like, you know, back when it was three, six limit hold'em. Now it's going to be one, two, no limit. And maybe you play the nightly tournaments that cost, you know, 30 or 50 or a hundred bucks. And you got some relative or person in your life who's like, oh, why do you do that? Why do you go play poker and lose all that money? Or you must be a degenerate. Just like, well, ask them, like, well, what's your hobby? And it's like, oh, you have a you have a Harley, and you like to take that and go for rides, you know, for hours and hours on a Saturday. Well, how much did that bike cost you, and how much does it cost to insure it, and how much did your like leather attire for safety and your helmet cost you, and gasoline, and da da da. Is a leather attire for safety, Greg? <laughs> It Does is. it help? It is. I mean, if I was just wearing a t-shirt and and jeans and got into an accident, then yeah, without the you know the leather will prevent you from getting some pretty bad scrapes and stuff. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it it definitely is a is a true. I mean, that may not be the reason they really want to wear it. I couldn't say. I don't ride a bike, <laughs> but whether you know, it, it still does have a valid purpose and you were buying a bike, they would be advising you to buy that gear, even if you weren't going to buy it from them. So, but that person is probably spending more on their weekend rides than 
this other person is spending when they go to the poker room once or twice a week and play some one, two, no limit. Yeah. Hobby's a hobby. So, so it's like, yeah, if I'm losing 500 a month playing poker and you're spending $1,500 a month on your bike or your, you know, water ski or, you know, whatever it is you like to do, why aren't you the degenerate? You're spending three times as much money on your hobby as I spend on mine. Why is mine make me a degenerate? Because of the societal implications, I think, of gambling and like, you know, golf is like an easy, low-hanging fruit of something that is relatively expensive and you are not really earning money by having the hobby of golf and you are spending a ton of money and time and energy every single year and nobody calls golfers degenerates. (laughs) Look at those degenerate golfers on this beautiful Saturday afternoon. Um, Well, you'll hear the stories about like the spouse is unhappy how much time sure <laughs> their, their their partner spends playing golf or whatever but yeah the, the word degenerate doesn't come in and yeah. uh you know it's it's that kind of a thing now if you're actually causing yourself financial harm from your poker habit that's different but there's also lots of other habits people have that cause that kind of harm they they shop too much and build up massive credit card debt and so on and so forth so if, if you're someone who's sticking to a reasonable budget then it shouldn't be looked at any differently than anything else that you might spend your money on absolutely Um, not you know and so i always find that kind of stuff amusing someone who would like you know oh i'm gonna give my my cousin crap because he gambles away 500 a month at the poker table but he can't give me crap for spending 2000 a month on my boat that I go and tool around, maybe, oh, I catch some fish. Well, so I catch food for the table, like $2,000 worth of fish every month. Like, I don't think so. Right. It's a, it's a misunderstood thing. And I hope as time goes on, it can be less frowned down upon as, as a legitimate hobby that's mentally stimulating and exciting and fun. I mean, poker is a fun game. Like there's a reason why so many people love playing it. Uh, It's stimulating in a way that most hobbies really aren't in my opinion and um i mean i'm lucky i still love poker and you know so unlike our earlier discussion with the people who play full-time for a long time and then get sick of it fortunately that hasn't happened but i've also not ever been in a spot where i need to you know i need to play 40 plus hours a week to make a living so that's also could be the reason i haven't gotten sick of it and if i had to go grind 40 plus hours a week of the one, two or two, five, or, you know, 20, 40 limit or whatever the game was that I was playing. Maybe I would have gotten sick of it by now. I don't know. Well, you have think I would have, but it's possible I'm wrong. You got a bunch of irons in the fire too. I know with coaching, with writing, all these other things are creative outlets that at least in my opinion, they've provided fulfillment for me. Uh, Coaching has given me a, a different way to think about, the game. I think about how do I convey complicated information in a simple way that somebody can understand. And that's a different problem than being like a a crushing poker player. And it's that, that aspect of it is fun. And again, it's, it's variety of not just grinding. I I enjoy time with my students. Me too. Um, You know, I, I enjoy, you know, going over their hands and, and teaching them stuff and like, Oh, did you think about this? Did you think about that? And And like you say, it's also a big difference. Um, 
you know, there's a kind of a silly saying, those who can't do teach. And, and that's obviously not really true, but, or it's certainly no more true than the fact that some people who can do cannot teach. I know plenty of people, not just poker, but on any skill, they just suck at explaining things. They're not clear. They're vague. They're confusing. They, they skip over important things and then they're trying to come back, you know, quite a ways down the road. Oh, wait, and I forgot to say this. And uh, it's like, well, you've now led that person pretty far astray and it's going to be, you know, if you had mentioned this at the right time, it would be so much easier for that person to understand you. You know, I find most people are not good at explaining things. They're not. Even things they know quite well. It's hard. And, uh, it's hard to put language around these things. It, it's hard to be exact and precise and concise at the same time. I mean, the first time someone tried to explain Badugi to me, they obviously didn't know because they were trying to say that like, oh, if you had ace, two, three, four with two spades, you would lose to my four kings because those are different suits. And they're telling me this and I'm like, oh, okay, so it's the suits that matter. And I'm like, well, wait, well, then... You know, if, if you have ace two three four rainbow and I have like ace ace two three rainbow, who wins? They're yeah. like, oh well the ace two three four wins. I'm like, okay, why? Because isn't know. three high <laughs> lower than four high? Right. And you know, you know, and then I found like, yeah, they were so wrong. You know, oh yeah, pairs count against you in Badoogie. They didn't understand that. Um and I've even been in mixed games and we get someone to join us who doesn't really know the games. And even if they're on the other side of the table from me, it'll be like, they start to ask about, Oh, the next game's going to be, you know, Badoogie. And they ask the person sitting next to them for an explanation. And, and if that person knows me, they'll be like, well, here, Greg, Greg, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> tell him, tell him, tell him how to, cause it's like, he'll, he'll going to say it better than I could. Right. And the, <laughs> um, the, it's because you've thought about it, right? And you've done it. And you, it's, you, we, it's part of my training, you know, between being a scientist and a lawyer. It's like one of the first things that they said to us in law school, like when you are writing things, and now this teacher was probably thinking more of like contracts or, you know, legislation, as opposed to like I did patent laws. They, they weren't thinking, you know, but it applies to all these legal documents. Your job when writing a legal document is not to write it so that people know what you mean. Your job is to write it so that even the person who is trying to argue that it means something else cannot possibly succeed. So it needs to be that exact, not just like, oh, okay, I get what Greg's saying. It's got to be, no, 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 you're trying to twist my meaning into something else and you can't do it because I haven't given you any foothold, any grip, anything that you can do to, to make that argument and do it in a valid way. And that's not the way most of us live our lives day to day. We do not think about saying things in a manner that cannot be twisted no matter what. And I don't walk around chit-chatting all day with that, you know, rigid, like I have to say it perfect. I don't think but you I could. tend to, you, you but I, you... I still tend to say things more perfectly than others just because that was my job for 12 years 
and before I went to law school and before I became a lawyer and I was a scientist, it's also, you were trying to be very exact, you know, like, does this experiment mean exactly this, or does it mean approximately this, but there's still lots of wiggle room. And if there is maybe before I publish, I should figure out some experiments to eliminate the wiggle room if it's possible to do so. So it wasn't as strict as the legal document stuff, but you were still trying to be very exact. Yeah. I, and even I, then, when I, I'm writing a paper that's going to be published in a scientific journal, any statement or claim I make about what my research has shown, I can't just say that like, oh, and therefore, this is how this illness works. I'd be like, no, this suggests that this pathway may be involved in this, you know, in diabetes and we want to do more work to figure this out. You know, you don't just, you know, like news headlines are all like diabetes cured. And it's like, no, someone discovered an enzyme that's part of the pathway. And we think if we inhibit this enzyme, it might help diabetic people to better control their blood sugar. Like that's what the scientists said. The headline in the newspaper is, cure for diabetes on the horizon or something. It's like, no, that's not what the scientists said. Well, yeah, they're trying to hit it's different um, different incentives. The headline for the newspaper yeah. is to get people to read it and to get people interested. The headline for the scientists is to protect their own ass, right? And to say things clearly yeah. in a way that's like... Yeah. The title of a scientific paper almost doesn't even tell you the... You know, it, it rarely even mentions the conclusion. It's more like, you know, analysis of benefits of inhibiting the uh, COX-1 esterase, you know. It doesn't the, jump uh, off the page. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it doesn't. And and so they might end up saying like, oh, we think we figured out something and this could lead to a great new number of drugs for dealing with this illness. That might be the conclusion. But it's just like, yeah, the title doesn't say, you know. We've cured, you know, pain. We've cured diabetes. We, you know, no, 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 no. We've we've done a study on major you know, breakthrough on path impacts, to cure. You know, well, not even that for the scientific paper. It's no, no, no. Like, I'm saying know, that's the headline, like major yeah, breakthrough, yeah. like something that grabs your curiosity and piques your interest. Yeah, I mean, I see those headlines, and then I'll like if it's something of any interest to me, I'll go read it, and it's like, okay, as I thought, like, you know. Bullshit. The scientific <laughs> paper did not say that, like, we found alternate dimensions. It's like, no, no, no. We found some evidence from the Great Hadron Collider, and it further solidifies this theory that suggests there might be other dimensions. But we certainly we haven't even we haven't proven it yet. Let alone like made contact with our doppelganger cells that are slightly different. But yeah, the news headline might make it think like. We've opened a hole and aliens are pouring in from the alternate dimension. So if you see someone who looks just like you, well, that is you, but they're slightly different. Yeah, they're a little, they've, they've, they've lived a little bit different life. I'd be scared to see my, my other self. I, I hope, I hope they're doing well wherever they are and that they've made good choices <laughs> with their life. Well, with the, the multiverse theory, some of them didn't make it. They died before now. Some of them are horribly disfigured. Some of them are king of the world, you know. They've done way better than you, so to speak. Um, you know, the, you know, it's an infinite possibilities. It's the so variance calculator. There's every, like a, every, a peak. Every and a, version oh. of 
every version of Brad would theoretically be out there in in the multiverse, but uh, you know, I think it'd break my so, brain knowing knowing how like the best version of me has done. I'm like, man, that guy, he's just such a crusher, you know. And then here's Greg, World Series of Poker main event champion. Your doppelganger comes in and like, fuck you, Greg. Why are you so successful? You won the main event. That's crazy. Well, there'll be, be the homeless version of me and the, uh, the one who, you know, like, that's the one I don't meet because he died in a car crash when he was still a kid and et cetera, et cetera. Infinite possibilities. And you're right. There's basically no chance you are the optimal, perfect version of yourself. <laughs> no chance. Well, there is a chance. Like, uh, it's just very, very small. It's it's one in an infinite number. Right. And, of course, it, it could just say it's all relative, too. So it's like, well, wait. By my own personal standards, this is as good as it gets. Yeah, I'm a beast. <laughs> and so I don't care if like, well, that guy uh, is, you know, the equivalent of Bill Gates rich and stuff and world famous and blah, blah, blah. I'd be like, I still consider myself better than him because I'm measuring on these standards, not those standards. Right. So you you could say you're the best version of yourself. I mean, but we all have regrets, things we wish we'd done differently at some point in our life. And that's fine. That's part of why we learn. And it's part of the life experience. I mean, what fun would life be if we just all made the optimal best choice at every single stage? Like, it, it's a game of incomplete information. We don't know what's going to happen. Be a in lot the of fun. It might. Be, it doesn't sound bad. It's true. It, <laughs> it doesn't. It doesn't I sound never, bad. I never made any dumb decisions. I mean, of course, just like in poker, you can make the best decisions and not get rewarded every time. Some of my bad decisions have I look back fondly I mean, on. I mean, there'd be the time that you got wasted and, and passed out somewhere and woke up the next morning and felt like crap. And if you had avoided getting that drunk, you would have gone home at a reasonable hour to get a good night's sleep before your exam in college the next day and been hit by someone else on the road and killed. All because <laughs> you made the better decision. And... uh you know, because you made the bad decision, you avoided that fate. Um, As poker and in life, sometimes you do the best you can, you make the optimal decisions, and you still get ran over on the side of the road. That's uh, randomness. Yeah. I think that's it's a great way to kind of tie tie up this interview. And um, I, I know that we were on the lightning round, and I, we went we went to the multiverse, and that <laughs> we got sidetracked by the multiverse. As I'm these, not good at I'm not good at lightning round unless you ask. Like, yes, no, or one, you know. I'm not good at it either. I'm really. Like, Where did you go to high school? Parkway South. Like, there is no, <laughs> like, I don't, you know, it's just, it's just a one-term answer. All right. Um, one more lightning round question. If you could put up a billboard on the way to the casino that every version of Greg Raymer in the multiverse has to drive past on the way, what does that billboard say? I can't think of anything important to, to that, that needs to be said at that moment that wouldn't apply to any other moment. Okay, in my let's life. let's exclude the Greg Ramers. Let's let's just put the the regular human driving to the, the casino. Just a little reminder. <laughs> hey, why don't you read that book, Fooled by Randomness, or <laughs> other things that will make you smarter and you know more capable of doing making good decisions in your life. We could just I say think that's make one of good the decisions. <laughs> Investigate yeah. making good decisions. Like learn how to make good decisions. Most of us don't, you know, it's not like we're explicitly taught such skills. Um, they they kind of 
evolve or don't as you learn everything else in your life growing up. Um, but it's not like there's specific instruction on that. But, you know, if, if, if we could just get people to be more thoughtful, you know, to, to put in more effort in some of these decisions. And I don't mean you have to like, you know, uh, freeze up because you don't know everything. You, know, you can't, uh, you know, do the uh, paralysis by analysis problem as it's, I think it's often called, but just put in an appropriate amount of time and effort for each decision. So like, which Apple am I going to buy at the store? Who cares? You can get that one wrong every time, no real effect on your life, but you know, who am I going to vote for? Uh, you know, who am I going to ask out? How am I going to treat this person? Uh, you know, what kind of career choices am I going to make? These more important questions, give them a lot more time and effort and think about them more. 100%. And so it's like, you know, doing that balancing act of giving everything a fair and appropriate amount of effort that it deserves rather than just winging it or just believing what you're told. Right. Rather than just falling in love at first sight, um, maybe investigate this person and try to get, well, try to, try to, get to know fall them. In, fall in love, but don't tie yourself to them forever until you get to know them better. Right. And Sp- uh, Spend more time you know, than you do in the cereal aisle trying to find your perfect cereal um, <laughs> when it comes like, to your you know, life partner. Like, like if you're the person I really look up to and you tell me to vote for this person or that person, you know, for president, like, don't just... Like, oh, well, Brad said it, so boom, I'm doing it. Like, no, like, do some of my own research and figure out who I think is going to be better at the job and better for me. Um, you it's know, hard, don't just man. accept, don't just accept what I'm told by people. Um, Finding- you know, and there's so much bad information out there now, too, unfortunately. Yeah. That's been the big downside of the internet. Like, we have all this great information that we can get at so easily. And, and I'm like, man, how did I even live? you know, way back when, when I couldn't just go Google and get the answer to almost anything. But the problem is, if it's not a 100% factual answer, you know, like, when was the Taj Mahal built? Like, there's really only one answer to that. You could say, oh, from A to Z, these years, and do we say the first year, the second year, or the whole range, but, you know, it's not like you're going to say that 100 years later is the correct answer or something like that. But when it's all this other stuff, like, oh, which tax plan is going to be better for my life? The one promoted by this candidate or that candidate, I can't just Google that. And if I try to learn more, unfortunately, I'm going to get exposed to a lot of misinformation. Yeah, it's hard. True information. It's hard to get to the core. It's hard to get to the, it's hard to find the truth because it's buried under so many layers and you've got to sift through so much BS that it, you know, it takes so much time. It's exhausting trying to find the truth of these things. Um, And, uh, you know, so I'm avoiding like doing any actual political comments here, but I'm just saying like, there is so much clear bullshit being spoken about every candidate. Right low-hanging now. fruit. You can find the low-hanging fruit pretty easily. So, but, you know, do your best to figure these things out. You know, take an appropriate amount of time in these decisions. You know, when you're, like, picking out a job, spend even a whole, you know, a whole lot more. Like, do a lot of research into that company. 
you know, try to find people like go to Facebook. Now this is where you can get, get into like find people who work for that company or used to, and, you know, set, them a, set up a zoom, set up a zoom meeting and ask them, how did you feel about working for that company? And those things are going to help you decide whether you should take that job or not, or should yeah. you work for someone else? So That's there's it. lots of great information. It's just a question of trying to parse through it effectively and efficiently. That is and, that's and doing doing those things too. is quite difficult. So we need we all need to improve our skills so we can do a better job of that. And find people with experience, like like you just said. Talk to them, have a conversation and learn from their experience because like we can imagine a million different scenarios and things can go one way or the other, but really they're just our imagination. And when you talk to somebody's experience as to this person that they have worked with, then you're at least getting um, more clear information about what's actually going on. It's certainly, you know, again, if someone hated that company and that's why they left, but it really turns out that their boss was an asshole. Well, if you're not working for the same boss at the same facility, then that aspect of their advice isn't of much importance. Whereas if they're talking about like, oh, well, here's an incident that happened and this is how corporate HR handled it. Now that could be relative to you, no matter which facility you work at. Right. And you should weigh that more heavily than just, well, Brad told me he hated it there because his boss was a giant piece of shit. It's like, well, fortunately, Brad worked for that boss in that facility and I'm going to work for a different boss in a different facility in a different department in a different state. And uh, so I probably don't have to worry about that one asshole Joe that Brad worked for. And maybe in the multiverse, that version of Brad is just an asshole too. Like maybe, maybe he brought it upon himself by being an asshole and maybe Joe's okay. I was speaking to your alternate universe self because the wires on our Zoom call call got crossed. Oh. (laughs) So that's why I'm talking to the wrong Brad. Yeah, you're talking to the wrong Brad. This is a multiverse zoom call we just didn't know it yeah this is so many episodes this is how i crank out so many episodes i just go through the multiverse and aggregate all the content and then just release it well do me a favor do not publish the uh interview of me from the multiverse where i'm like some kind of homeless asshole yeah you're homeless crackhead (laughs) total (laughs) oh yeah i'm a homeless drug addicted loser asshole (laughs) you know Everyone hates me. Yeah, yeah. Try to avoid publishing that one, please. Yeah, I'll stay away from that guy. He kind of scares me anyway. Um, Greg, it's I'm been... Find the one where I won the Powerball 10 times in a row, and I do nothing with my money but try to make the world a better place. I mean, publish that interview. That version of me is... That sounds like a much nicer version. It is. It's going to be hard to find a much better version than you than than you've created in this universe um you i'm very grateful for your time and your energy thank you for promoting poker growing the game being an amazing ambassador and uh all of your contributions of content and coaching and books just through the years they mean a, a whole lot to me and a whole generation of poker players that came up during the boom and um i really enjoyed our time together today greg and so if people are interested, like I said, my book, Fossil Man's Winning Tournament Strategy, it's out there. It's published by D&B Publishing. They can find it at the D&B website or, you know, any place that sells books. And if you are interested in, like, private lessons or anything, I can be found. Either you can, like, you know, tweet at me, at Fossil Man 
on Twitter, or you can go to my website, fossilmanpoker.com, and send me a message there, which will be sent to my email, and I'll get back to you. So whether you're interested in lessons or anything else, glad to hear from you. Thank you for your time, and have a great rest of your day. Take it easy. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Chasing Poker Greatness. If you have yet to subscribe to the show, please take a second to do so on Apple Podcasts or wherever your favorite place to listen to podcasts may be. For more content from me, Coach Brad, please visit our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash enhance your edge, and I'll see you next time.